Everybody willing to get up before dawn, milk cows, work all day in the fields, milk cows again, eat supper, then go to town and stay past midnight at a meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. My administration will be focused on three very important words. Jobs, jobs, jobs. This man must be a minister, a social worker, a diplomat, a tough guy, and a gentleman. And of course he'll have to be a genius because he'll have to feed a family on a policeman's salary. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. We, the citizens of America, are now joined in a great national effort to rebuild our country and restore its promise for all of our people. Because today, we are not merely transferring power from one administration to another, or from one party to another. But we are transferring power from Washington, D.C., and giving it back to you, the people. Hold on to your seats. Buckle up for safety. You are now entering another dimension with The Scott Adams Show. And that's right. My name is Scott Adams. You're listening to The Scott Adams Show. I want to thank everybody for tuning in today. Well, they finally did it, as we predicted last week, that uh, Mayorkas got impeached. Because he stinks as a Department of Homeland Security secretary. And not just that, but... uh, He lies. (laughs) That's That's the other bad part, right? I mean... He lies a lot. The guy just, it's an agenda. It's an agenda. Not only uh, should DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas be impeached, but he should be referred for prosecution for perjury. I mean, he said this. He said this. It is my testimony that the border is secure and we are working every day, day and night, to increase its security. It is- increase its security. No, no, you're not. What he is doing is he's asking for more money to process more illegal ballot harvesters or illegal ballots because that's how they look at these people. See, this is the trouble with globalists in general. They look at people as useless bottom feeders. Remember Harvone, Harvani, or or Haru, uh, whatever his name is. Uh, He was the he's the advisor for Klaus Schwab, and he was talking about how you know people are useless and and uh, we don't need so many people. Why do we need so many people? You know, we're going to pacify them with video games and whatever, and keep them preoccupied, like we're in a like we're fish in a bowl. You know, feed us some fish, uh, fish food, and let us swim around. Because automation and artificial intelligence is superior to human beings. I mean, does this guy even have a heart? Does he have a soul? Does he have feelings? What person speaks like that? Except for a psychopath. I don't care how smart he is. If he's that at all, 
But wow, what a wickedly disturbed and distorted view of people and the world. You know, our population is what it is, but, you know, people since the beginning of time have depended on other people. Cohabitating, getting along, falling in love, going against each other, whatever, you know, it's conflict, it's chaos, it's harmony, it's love, it's, it's all kinds of things, the human condition. But they don't see humans that way. They see them as cattle or a herd. They see them as useful or useless. What can they do for you? These these, uh, globalist elites think on those terms. And Mayorkas and uh, Biden have an arrogance about them. They think they're the smartest people in the room, like that Harari guy, uh, who is the um, Klaus Schwab's advisor, like we were just talking about. They think they're the smartest people in the room. That's the trouble with liberal elites. You go to the Ivy Leagues, and they're like so smug. You know, they're like doctor this and doctor that, Dr. Jill Biden. And they throw these labels around as if somehow that makes them whole. It's like, what have you done for me lately? Just because you have a PhD beside your name doesn't mean that you're smart. It just means you drank the Kool-Aid and drank all of it, drank all the punch. It doesn't necessarily mean you're an achiever or a winner. It doesn't mean any of those things just because you have a degree. So many people work 30, 40 years in a job. They deserve a degree as well. You know, but uh, in any case, Majorca says this, but really what he's about is just moving migrants through the open border. Why? Again, I'm probably one of the few people that keeps on harping on this, but I think it's because there's money involved. Now you say, well, duh, Scott, that's, yeah, got it. Cartels, trafficking, human trafficking, sex slaves, People, selling people. But it's not just that, it's the ballots. They're seeing them as ballots. They're registering them to vote. Then the ballots are going to go to their address and they're going to be collected by a ballot harvester who's going to get paid to fill them out. And unless we have signature verification, folks, we're never going to have free and fair elections. Unless we get rid of mail-in, mass mail-in balloting, we're never going to have fair elections. It's always going to be riddled with fraud. So corporations are benefiting from the cheap labor. And this is the biggest problem of all, is, is that the cheap labor, the cheap labor is creating a lot of profits. Those profits are turning into campaign donations. Some of it. Some of it is. So we're going to go ahead and take a caller. It's a little early in the show for a call. Caller, you're on the air. Yeah. Hey, good morning, Scott. Good morning. Listen, um, 
I got a I got a little a little bone to pick with you. No. Um, Mayorkas never lied when he said that the that the uh, the border was secure. He wasn't lying. It was secure before he got into office. <laughs> no, it's, no, it's secure while he was in office. Yeah. You see, we're looking at this thing from two different perspectives. Okay. So when we think of border security, we think of a, a, a border that, that is, is secure, and we know who's coming in, and it's not being overrun by illegals. But when they look at security, well, they have control of it. They know who's coming in, and they're facilitating everything that's going on. You see what I mean? Right. I mean, you could so look at from his perspective. It's just like the, it's just like when they said that the election was the most secure in history. Yes, it was because they had control of it. That's why. Ah, that's a good point. And you know what else? I, I I've also I, I've said this before too, which is inter- an interesting take on it. Like take a step back and look at something from a different angle, right? And mm-hmm. so it's like George Soros, you know, uh, you know, uh, financing these DAs is basically the equivalent, it's not far different, uh, allowing criminals back on the streets to rape and murder and and rob and and put a cap in people's heads, uh, middle-class citizens, taxpayers, law-abiding citizens, is no different than if he were to march an army down, you know, into those those cities where these these crimes are happening uh, left and right. So the turning releasing the criminals into the streets uh, thanks to George Soros DAs. Soros is actually creating an army that's killing off middle class Americans in droves by lo- allowing these street thugs on the street with their guns and robbing people and raping people and shooting people and killing them dead. So What's the difference between that and a Ukrainian soldier, you know, going into Kiev or something like that, right? There's no difference. Mm-hmm. There's no difference because people are still getting murdered. And just because they're not in uniform, it doesn't mean that they're not part of Soros's army because he hates Americans and he he probably enjoys seeing the crim- the crime and the chaos and the and the destruction of our country. And that he's doing it through decay. I mean, you can knock someone's teeth out with your fist. You could also, guess what? Knock someone's teeth out by giving them too much sugar and not giving them a toothbrush. <laughs> I right? was just going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. It's called decay. Mm-hmm. Right? What's the difference? The end result is the same. Yeah. Well, the end result, the, the difference is, is that uh, when you punch somebody's teeth out, you have somebody... Uh, that's culpable to but blame when you to blame let it rot yeah when you let it rot then it's, there's it's no your fault. to point to it's your fault yep <laughs> see one it's is a lot cleaner than deniability. the other one is the lot cleaner than the other yeah it's all about plausible deniability mm-hmm. right that's what's going uh, on on that, an aggregate scale in our country right now yep all right thanks for all calling right, well, in Love the show. Bye. All right. Take care. Yeah, that that was um kind of interesting, I have to say. Uh that that analysis was uh uh very interesting. So we have a lot of um I'm gonna pick up, I'm gonna play some of that uh uh Tucker Carlson audio um that we uh were trying to get to yesterday and didn't have time to get to. So we're gonna do that. Um here they uh 
did impeach him. I guess there was three nays, all three Republicans that voted that they think that Mayorkas is doing a great job. They're not running for re-election. <laughs> they're they're you know out one. They're not running. On this vote, the yeas are two fourteen and the nays are two thirteen. The resolution is adopted. So we knew that last week that Steve Scalise was having cancer treatment. They were going to go ahead and you know the guy from Utah took a took a took one on the chin and reversed his vote so that they could come back and revisit this, and they did. They did exactly what they said they would do. Kudos to uh, Speaker Johnson for making that happen. That's something that McCarthy didn't wasn't able to do, but Speaker Johnson made that happen. So I know a lot of people are on the fence with Speaker Johnson, as am I. You know, I'm not sold on that. But, hey, credit where credit is due, right? Now, what does this mean, this impeachment? You know, who knows? Um, Mayorka says he's doubling down on stupid and is not going to leave no matter what. So who, who knows? We have a rogue government. We have a banana republic. We're, we're become, quickly becoming a banana republic. So, hey, former DNI John Ratcliffe sounds the alarm on faux asylum seekers, warns of the shocking stat the highest percentage of illegal border crossers are Chinese and that a high number of these are military-age men and likely spies for the CCP. Second highest in a- are aliens from El Salvador, which now this is the safest country in the Western Hemisphere. Begs the question, how are violent gang, how are violent gang and drug cartel criminals escaping to avoid prison under law and order president uh, Nayibuke Kel? That's the new leader over in El Salvador. They basically uh, cut crime down from like 90%. But, you know, that's very expensive to house all these criminals in these jails, right? So what do you think? Maybe he let them go and said, I'll give you an option. You're either going to spend rotten jail for the rest of your life. We're never letting you out. Or you can go and hightail it to America. And never, ever show your face back in El Salvador again. Right? (laughs) Why not? It's cheaper. Don't cost nothing. Right? Wow. So we're getting a lot of criminals from El Salvador. Meanwhile, they're crime-free. You do the math. So China, uh, the statistics are just overwhelming. Right, it's happening like overnight. Well, no, well, so third highest in, is India, well known for supplying Silicon Valley and other high tech regions with low cost labor. Again, low cost labor, right? So, someone else wrote breaking news the number of Chinese who have crossed our border and is the largest national nationality now crossing over who are spies sent here by the CCP. John Ratcliffe pointed this out. If China opened their border, our spy agencies would flood as many U.S. spies into China and that it is exactly, that's exactly what China is doing to you at the U.S. in our open borders. China also refuses to take anyone back into their country when ICE 
has tried to send some back. So that's another little wrinkle. So this is Joe Biden selling out America. I don't understand why the Democrats are supporting that. Why do Democrats support this? They'll try to put this humanity for the love of humanity. (laughs) So Oversight Committee wrote this uh, tweet. It says, we are giving the Justice Department until February 19th at 5 p.m. to produce the transcript of President Biden's interview with Special Counsel Robert Herr and other documents included in the report that relate to our impeachment inquiry. Americans deserve transparency about President Biden's mental state and his mishandling of classified documents. So you vote for Ukraine uh, spending bill came up in the Senate. Mitt Romney, of course, partnered with Kofor Black and profited from wars in Afghanistan and wars in uh, Ukraine. Kofor Black former CIA counterintelligence office chief, uh, was also Mitt Romney's political campaign advisor in 2007, 8, and 12. And he uh, sat on the board with Hunter Biden uh, at Burisma. He worked with Blackwater, a mercenary outfit that specialized in providing mercenaries in war zones. And just so happens that there was a lot of mercenaries going on in Ukraine in 2014. Then he's on the board of Burisma, run by Kolomoisky, who is basically the puppet master to Zelensky and an oligarch. And all of a sudden, you hear Mitt Romney say something stupid like this. The vote we will soon take to provide military weapons for Ukraine is the most important vote we will ever take as United States senators. Where did he get that accent, by the way? The vote we will soon take to provide military weapons for Ukraine is the most important vote we will ever take as United States senators. He's lying through his teeth. That little twang of an accent that you're hearing there. Will ever take. He's lying through his teeth. And he's in character right there to pull it off and to say it with a straight face. He is lying. So Senator Mike Lee calls for the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell to step down from his leadership post. Why do you want Mitch McConnell to step down, Fox News? Maria Bartiroma asks Lee. Look, Republican senators are not part of the same feudal system. So he goes on to say basically that Mitch McConnell is not up for the job and he's allowed a lot of things to happen that he shouldn't have. So like I said, we are going to get to uh, Tucker Carlson on this Ukraine thing. Listen to the difference though here. Mitt Romney versus Vladimir Putin. Let's take a listen to this. Tomorrow, Russia will use tactical nuclear weapons in order to extort additional money from U.S. taxpayers. And they are trying to intimidate their own population with an imaginary Russian threat. This is an obvious fact. Can you imagine a scenario where you sent Russian troops to Poland? 
Only in one case, if Poland attacks Russia. Why? Because we have no interest in Poland, Latvia or anywhere else. Why would we do that? We simply don't have any interest. It's just threat-mongering. If we fail to help Ukraine, Putin will invade a NATO nation. Lying. If we fail to help Ukraine, NATO... The alliance has prevented great power conflict for over 75 years, will falter and eventually disintegrate. We will be replaced by the authoritarians, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea. Next, we were told that we couldn't afford $60 billion for Ukraine-related funding. But somehow we can afford an $850 billion annual defense budget and annual trillion-dollar deficits which has happened under both former President Trump and President Biden. So once again, he's lying about uh, this fear mongering in order to continue to launder money through Ukraine, which makes he and his principal interests and his investments lucrative, uh, profitable. All right. So uh, Tucker says Putin wants peace. Not war. Let's take a listen to this. Sykes-Picot are two of the you know, worst agreements ever struck. By the way, Sykes-Picot. I've talked about this on the, ra- uh, on the radio before. Uh, Sykes-Picot. World War I, collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Sykes and Picot, a French and a British guy, got together and drew up the lines in the sand in the Middle East and created a tinderbox of chaos and confusion because he put basically groups together that could never get along with each other, which set in in motion uh, a lot of the conflicts that we saw in the century uh, that followed. And uh, that happened. And uh, they did it in the name of divvying up fair and square resources, oil, minerals, and, and precious resources not thinking about all the other unintended consequences of their decisions. So he mentioned Sykes and Pico right here. This is his um, post-Putin interview in Dubai. Sykes-Pico are two of the you know, worst agreements ever struck. Um, so uh, I hope whatever comes out of this is nothing like those. But um, first things first, Putin wants to get out of this war. He's not going to um, become more open to negotiation the longer this goes on. One of the things we've learned in the course of the last two years is that Russia's industrial capacity is a lot more profound than we thought it was. I mean, Russia's having an eat Russia, this country we were assured was a gas station with nuclear weapons, um, has a pretty easy time making missiles, rockets, and artillery shells, whereas NATO doesn't. So we should think about what that means. One. Sykes-Pico are two of the you know, worst agreements ever struck. Uh, okay, so um, Vivek responds to that and says, Tucker's... Actually, no, no, no. That, that, this, was a, this was not a true um, Vivek account, so my bad on that. All right, so uh, I thought that was interesting, though. Um, 
So David Sachs asks Senator J.D. Vance, Ron Johnson, and Mike Lee to investigate allegations that Boris Johnson and the Biden administration sabotaged a Russian-Ukraine peace deal at the onset of the war. This is some really great dialogue that you want to hear. Um, so I'm going to share it with you. All right, let's take a listen. Again, I think it's just tragic that the U.S. is using Ukraine as the pawns in their proxy war with Russia, and Ukraine is being destroyed as a result of that. Can I just add something to that? I'm old enough to remember when the Senate and Congress uh, passed the first $113 billion for Ukraine. And I remember very clearly that what was claimed about that funding is that it would be used by the Ukrainians to evict the Russians from their territory, that there would be a successful spring or summer counteroffensive and the Russians be pushed out of Ukraine. That was the objective. And that money was spent and the Ukrainians were uh, defeated in the counteroffensive. It completely failed. Now they're out of soldiers. We're out of artillery ammunition and the lines are buckling. And like J.D. said, we're, there, there's no clear objective for this new $61 billion. No one is now claiming that this money will succeed in getting the Russians out of Ukraine. No one's even um, proposing that victory in this war is an objective anymore. All they're saying is, well, we just need to appropriate this money because we want to avoid defeat or we want to get to uh, a negotiating position with the Russians, which, like you guys are saying, we had at the beginning of the war. We had in Istanbul a draft agreement that was signed by the Ukrainians. Uh, David Arakamia, who is the leader of the Ukrainian delegation, said they had a deal. Uh, Alexei Aristovich, who worked for Zelensky at that time, said they were popping champagne bottles because they had a deal. And then Boris Johnson flew into Kiev and all of a sudden the deal fell apart. So it seems like all we're trying to do now is appropriate money to get back to the place that we already had for free at the beginning of this war, which is a negotiation with the Russians. I guess my question for all of you senators is, could we get a real investigation, some congressional oversight, a congressional investigation of what exactly happened in that sort of March, April period at the beginning of the war, where, again, they had a draft agreement in Istanbul, and then Boris Johnson came in, and the Ukrainians walked away. I mean, I would love for the Congress to be able to ask real questions of the administration in its oversight capacity, asking, what was your involvement in sabotaging that deal? Great question, right? Yeah. It's a fabulous question. So here, just in in four days after Putin said U.S. politicians were threat-mongering their citizens... Uh, about the Ukraine war to gouge more money out of us. Senator Romney threat threat mongers Americans to gouge more money out of us. Yeah, absolutely. So Kofor Black, uh, I talk about him, financed mercenaries and weapons to get rich in Afghanistan and Ukraine. So did Mitt Romney, Mitt Romney and Senator uh, and Kofor Black did. Aid to Ukraine comes with strings that require that money uh, be laundered back into Washington, D.C. with firms like uh, the one Secretary Blinken founded, West Exec. 
So, you know, that's how the game is played. That's how the laundering is coming back. All right, so I promise you I wanted to to share with you Tucker's interview with uh, a news guy in Dubai. This happened just a few days ago. It happened after the Vladimir Putin interview that Tucker conducted, and it's worth a listen. It's going to be about 20 minutes long, but it's I think it's very much worth listening to. So let's take a listen. And you sort of wonder, how did you get to a place where you have an incompetent president who's driven not simply the standard of living, but life expectancy downward, and no one feels free to say that? That's not a political observation. It's a statement of fact, which is provable empirically. And the most radicalizing thing I would just say for me in the eight days I spent in Moscow was not simply the leader of the country, who of course is impressive. It's the largest landmass in the world. And it's wildly diverse, linguistically, culturally, religiously. It's hard to run a country like that for 24 years, whether you like it or not. So an incapable person couldn't do that. He is very capable, and many of you know him, and you know that. What was radicalizing, very shocking, and very disturbing for me was the city of Moscow, where I'd never been, the biggest city in Europe, 13 million people. And it is so much nicer than any city in my country. I had no idea. My father spent a lot of time there in the 80s when he worked for the U.S. government and barely had electricity. And now it is so much cleaner and safer and prettier aesthetically. It's architecture, it's food, it's service than any country, city in the United States that you have to, and this is non-ideological, how did that happen? How did that happen? And at a certain point, I don't think the average person cares as much about abstractions as about the concrete reality of his life. And if you can't use your subway, for example, as many people are afraid to in New York City because it's too dangerous, you have to sort of wonder, like, isn't that the ultimate measure of leadership? And that's true, by the way, it's radicalizing for an American to go to Moscow, I didn't know that, I've learned it this week, to Singapore, to Tokyo, to Dubai and Abu Dhabi. Because these cities, no matter how we're told they're run and on what principles they're run, are wonderful places to live. That don't have rampant inflation, where you're not gonna get raped. Sir, and excuse so, me. What is that? Excuse me, are you anti-American model? No, I am the most pro-American. So I'm 54. I was born in 1969. I grew up in a country that had cities like Moscow and Abu Dhabi and Dubai and Singapore and Tokyo. And we no longer have them. And what I have discovered is that's a voluntary choice. As inflation is, as you heard in that fascinating last panel, inflation is the product of choices made mostly by the central bank, not exclusively, but by policymakers. Crime, same. You don't have to have crime, actually. If you don't put, my children don't smoke marijuana at the breakfast table. Why? Because I won't allow them. It's very simple. It's a short conversation. No. And you can run your country the same way. We're not going to put up with that. So don't do it. And people understand that. Filth, graffiti, Paris, one of my favorite cities, New York, one of my favorite cities are filthy. And part of the reason they're filthy is because people spray paint obscenities on buildings and no one cleans it up. So that encourages more people to do the same. And our policymakers, for some reason, don't notice this. London, another one of my favorite cities. You see English girls begging for drugs on the sidewalk. And I thought to myself, if I'm Boris Johnson, who briefly and very badly ran that country, I would ask myself, like, wait a second. My countrymen are begging for drugs on the street. Maybe I should do something about that. But no, he'll show up and give some speech about Ukraine and how we need to send you know, more cluster bombs to the brave now, Ukrainians. Now you, what are you doing? You mentioned Ukraine. By talking to this gentleman, President Putin, for this lengthy interview, my question is, did you have 
coffee with him? Did you have any uh, off-the-record discussion yes. before the interview? After. Did you feel during the interview or before or after that this man can make or is willing to do a historical compromise, number one, on the uh, status of the world with the West, and number two, about Ukraine? Is he a compromiser? Yes or no? Of course. Right? I mean... The leaders of every country on the planet, other than maybe the United States during the unipolar period, are forced by the nature of their jobs to compromise. Compromise is part of it. That's what diplomacy is. And he's among those. His position is clearly hardening. Russia has been rebuffed by the West. I mean, Vladimir Putin, this is not, I'm not flacking for Putin. I'm an American. I'm not going to live in Russia. I don't love Vladimir Putin. I'm, I'm stating the facts. He asked Bill Clinton to join NATO. He yes. tried to make a missile deal. He mentioned with, this in the interview. He did. That's yes. correct. Yes. And he's mentioned it in other forums as well. And NATO said, no, we don't want you. Now, if the point of NATO, not if, the point of NATO originally, of course, the post-war goal of NATO was to keep the Russians, the Soviets, from coming into Western Europe. It was a bulwark against the Russians. So if the Russians asked you to join the alliance, that would suggest you have solved the problem and you can move on to do something constructive with your life. But we refused. And so... I mean, just meditate on that. Go sit in the sauna for an hour and think about what that means. Before sitting in the sauna, a question, a question now. Final conclusion. You think that Vladimir Putin is eager for a compromise, a compromise like Yalta, Sykes-Biko, uh, the Ottoman Empire, several agreements, any international agreement to share power and to share influence in the world with the West if there is somebody who is willing. And Biden administration wants tension, wants war, want to uh, exert pressure on him so that they can... Uh, weaken his economy and weaken his alliance with, with China? Is this is what you are reaching from your conclusions? My, my conclusions are in code. I mean, I've, I've been thinking about this for a couple of years. I have a whole new set of data to mull over, and I'm not a genius, so it's going to take me a while to figure out what I think. But at this stage, four days later, I would say, first of all, Yalta and Sykes-Pico are two of the you know, worst agreements ever struck. Um, so uh, I hope whatever comes out of this is nothing like those. But um, first things first. Putin wants to get out of this war. He's not going to um, become more open to negotiation the longer this goes on. One of the things we've learned in the course of the last two years is that Russia's industrial capacity is a lot more profound than we thought it was. I mean, Russia's having an eat Russia, this country we were assured was a gas station with nuclear weapons, um, has a pretty easy time making missiles, rockets, and artillery shells, whereas NATO doesn't. So we should think about what that means, one. Two, um, the West doesn't spend any time, or our policymakers in Washington spend no time thinking about, like, what are the achievable goals here? I have heard, personally, U.S. government officials say, well, we're just going to have to return Crimea to Ukraine. Well, you don't need to be a, a Russia scholar. So that's not going to happen short of a nuclear war. That's insane, actually. So even to say something like that reveals that you're a child, you don't understand the area at all, and you have no real sense of what's possible. And so as long as our leaders, and not simply in the U.S., but NATO, and I really mean Germany, um, don't like, take the time to learn about what's possible, like, you, we're not going to get anywhere. You think there is a, a big gap between the depths of understanding the philosophy of history between Biden and between Putin? 
you, you see Putin who have studied history and who is very deep in history. And he looks like he gave you a lecture in, in for 30 minutes concerning the history of Ukraine and its relationship with the mother uh, Russia. Does Biden understand the law of action and reaction which moves a country like Russia? I, I can't overstate how incapacitated Joe Biden is. That's not an attack. That is a fact. And anyone who tells you otherwise is lying. So these are not decisions Joe Biden is making. But there are capable people around Biden, and I know them. What they lack is any perspective at all. So a conversation with a U.S. policymaker about the history of the region would begin and end with a conversation about, of course, Chamberlain and Churchill and Hitler. Period. So the American policymaker historical template is tiny. In fact, there's only one. And it's a two-year period in the late 1930s. And everything is based on that understanding of history and human nature. And that's insane. And so, actually, American policymakers have convinced themselves that Vladimir Putin is going to take over Poland. And it is not a defense of Putin. I don't mean to defend Putin. I'm not a fan of Putin's, and I'm not a subject of Putin's. I'm an American. However, there's no evidence that Putin has any interest in expanding his borders. He is the largest country in the world, and it's very hard to run. They don't need natural resources. There's nothing in Poland he wants. There's nothing he will gain by taking Poland other than more trouble. Uh, so that is, here, if here, you're saying here, that he's going to invade here, Poland, here, you don't know what you're talking here, about. Here is a point, a point in the interview. When you asked him, are you... Are you ready to, to invade Poland? Are you an expansionist you, uh, power? Expansion, yeah. yes, in, in, in Poland. He said only if Poland launched a war of course. on Russia. Okay? Ukraine did not launch a war on Russia, and he invaded Ukraine. Why you didn't follow up on this question? <laughs> I started with that question, actually. Um, but he treated me to 35 minutes of Catherine the Great. Okay. And the Rus. Uh, but no, th the core question is, why did he move his forces into eastern Ukraine? Mm. And I watched this from a distant vantage in the United States, and I watched the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris, go to the Munich Security Conference just days before that, in February of 2022, and say in a public forum at a press conference to Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, we want you to join NATO which is another way of saying, it's a synonym for, we plan to put nuclear weapons on Russia. You think they threw a bait for him? Are you joking? Of course they did. They and, everyone, and it just tells you how constipated and restricted and censored the U.S. media landscape is, that I was the only one who said that. Well, wait a second. The purpose of diplomacy is to reach a peaceful, mutually one hopes beneficial conclusion to a crisis. So if you're showing up voluntarily at the Munich Security Conference and saying, hey, Zelensky, why don't you allow us to put nuclear weapons on Russia's border? You're cruising for a war because you know that's the red line. Because Putin has said that, and any close observer now, of the area now, already knows now, that. Now, do you have an explanation, a reasonable explanation, no. why there is this anti-war and this very negative remarks about this interview from a lot of your colleagues and a lot of politicians in the world? One of the ways that I, I think I'm different is I don't like the internet, and um, I haven't seen any of the reaction, and I would imagine, you know, I'm not the most popular person among my colleagues in the United States. I wouldn't have dinner with them anyway, so it's no great loss. But, um, you know, they, I, I can't imagine what their motives would be. I didn't go to Russia, of course, to promote Vladimir Putin, and if, I, if that was my purpose, I'd say so, because I'm not embarrassed. 
I went because I felt that most Americans, in whose name all of this is being done, don't really know what's happening, and they know nothing about the guy they're supposedly at war with in, uh, unofficially. And I just felt that my job, if I have a job in this world, is to bring information to people so they can decide. And so I wanted to do the longest interview I could with Vladimir Putin that contained the most amount of Vladimir Putin talking, not me grandstanding about what a great person I am. When an American journalist interviews someone like Vladimir Putin, the whole point of the interview is to say, I'm a good person and you're not. And that interview was aimed at his colleagues in the newsrooms in the United States. I'm a good person. Why are you such a bad person? You're committing genocide. Okay. That's not fruitful, and that's certainly not my role. I care what God thinks of me, what my wife thinks of me, and what my four children think of me, and that's all I care about. So I don't need to prove that I'm a good person. I want to hear Vladimir Putin talk so people in my country can assess what's happening. Uh, uh, that's I'll, it. I'll, I'll, I'll use the devil's advocate. But advocate say, away. Yes. Okay, I'll tell you. You, you should challenge in, in, in the rules of an interview, and you're a master in, in, your, in your business. Uh, it's not for me to give you a lecture about that, but you should challenge some ideas. For instance, uh, y- y- you didn't talk about freedom of speech in, in Russia. You did not talk <laughs> about Navalny, about assassinations, about, about the restrictions on uh, opposition in the coming uh, elections. I didn't talk about the things that every other American media outlet talks about. Why? Yes, this because is my those question. are covered, and because I have spent my life talking to people who run countries in various countries and have mm. concluded the following that every leader kills people, including my leader. Every leader kills people. Some kill more than others. Leadership requires killing people. Sorry. That's why I wouldn't want to be a leader. Um, that press restriction is universal in the United States. I know because I've lived it. I've you know, asked my former, you know, I, I've had a lot of jobs. Um, and I've done this for 34 years, and I know how it works. And um, there's more censorship in Russia than there is in the United States, but there's a great deal in the United States. And so, you know, at a certain point, it's like people can decide whether they think you know, what, what countries they think are better, what systems they think Sir, are better. I, I, I just I, want to know what he thinks. That was yes, the whole point. Yes. I was very surprised uh, about an inappropriate remark. I, I don't think it is, contains any of the, uh, what you can call, jaunties or uh, niceties from uh, Mrs. Clinton when she mentioned uh, a phrase about you. I don't want to repeat it. Oh, well, you're not going to hurt my feelings. Don't worry. N- n- well, well, gentlemen, she, she called this gentleman, this honorable gentleman, that he is playing the role of a... You see it. I, I didn't see it. You didn't She's see it. She's a child. I don't listen to her. No, uh, no. How's Libya doing? No, 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 no. no. Uh, okay. She, she said uh, uh, the, 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 the useful idiot. And, and, and if you see the interview, that has nothing to do with this at all. He was trying to get uh, a, a testimony about the world as Putin sees it. And this is exactly what we need to know, how this man thinks. Either you consider him an enemy or you consider him uh, a, f- a friend, or you consider him uh, a dictator, but you, you should understand how the man thinks. Now, the you, qu- you put it better than I could. That's a, you just described my motive right there. Okay, sir. Now, 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 now the, 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 the question is if this is the, that is that, as they say in the United States, and this is the, 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 uh, the power of media 
and the way the media is becoming very biased in a deep state like America. Where are we going in the model of democracy in the world? Media information in a free country is a counterbalance against entrenched power, not just government power, but the economic power, business. It, it was de- in my country, constitutionally, it is, de- it is designed to, be, to serve as a counterbalance to that. So if sources of information, media outlets, align with entrenched power, then you have a powerless population, and it's totalitarian. And that is very quickly the direction the United States is headed. And, and I do think that technology abets this progression, and machine learning especially. And so it's a perilous moment. If, if it you know, were a democracy, purportedly, and a prerequisite for democracy is information so that the electorate can make up its mind and decide who to choose. And so if you don't have access to information, you don't have democracy. And we're in this sort of weird spiral where our leaders lecture us ever more about democracy and how sacred it is, even as they choke it off, choke it to death. And so I think the people who provide information, who bring the facts to the public, have a critical role to play. And right now it's difficult. I'm not facing any great, I I don't mean to cast myself as a hero. I'm certainly not a hero at all. Um, But I do think it's tougher and tougher to do that. And that means we have a greater obligation to do it. Sir, do you have an explanation till this moment, since the Gaza events took place, till now nobody came out and said, how on earth the United States of America is vetoing the, the stoppage of uh, fire, how a country would veto not to continue war, how, how somebody is against stopping a war. The United States is, for this moment, is the most powerful country in the history of the world. So if you were to frame this in terms we're all familiar with, which are the most basic terms, the terms of the family, the United States would be dad, would be the father. And the father's sacred obligation is to protect his family and to restore peace within his walls. So if I come home, I have four children, if I come home from work and two of my kids are fighting, What's the first thing I do? Even before I assess why they're fighting, before I gather the facts and know what's happening. I, I stop the fight. I stop fighting. Yes. So if I come home and t- I have two kids fighting and I say, go, go, beat the crap out of them. I am evil because I have violated the most basic duty of fatherhood, which is to bring peace because I have the power. I'm the only one who can bring peace. And so if you see a nation with awesome power abetting war for its own sake, you have a leadership that has no moral authority that is illegitimate. And I mean that, too. And, I, and I, not, I'm not even referring to any specific region or conflict. I mean generally. And I'm deeply offended by that. Deeply. Um, and, and it's something that I try to express, and I'm often called a traitor for saying that. It's the opposite. I say that because I believe in the United States. I think it's a moral, it has been a morally superior country. And if we allow our leaders to use our power to spread destruction for its own sake, that is shameful. It's a binary, okay? It's a, it's a black and white. It's a zero and a one. You are either creating or you're destroying. You're improving or you're degrading. And that's how you know whether something is good or bad, whether it's virtuous or evil. If you just judge the fruits. <laughs> By its fruits, you will know it. Uh, and, I, and I'm very distressed and concerned that we are entering an era where this awesome force for good is instead being used for evil. Two quick questions because I ran out of time. First question is, now in the American elections, we have probabilities. Either it's Biden and Trump or 
Biden and somebody else, not Trump, or no Biden and no Trump and circumstances or fate get us two different people representing Republican or Democrats. What do you think, where are we going to reach uh, coming 19th of November? Who will be running the show? I haven't, honestly, I haven't the faintest idea. But I, I think there's volatility ahead in our political sphere. I mean, clearly there is, because... I, I like you when you said, I, I don't have an, an idea. You, you, you have this courage of, to say that you don't know. You were telling me this morning that what one of the things which you like very much about here, um, our, our President Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, God bless him, uh, when you ask him a question... If he doesn't have an answer, he tell me, actually, I don't know the answer of this question. I've never heard a leader of anything, whether it's a country or a company or a soccer team, ever in my life, in a life spent interviewing people. I've never heard a single one of them say, you know, I don't, I don't know the answer. It's very complicated. I haven't figured it out. I've never heard anybody say that. And to me, that is the, the purest sign of wisdom, because wisdom grows from humility. Wisdom grows from the recognition that you are not God. And in the United States, we had a period where we were sort of, you know, having this debate about are some religions good and some religions bad? I'll tell you my view on it, and it's a hardened view. It's a sincere view. I divide the world not between Muslim, Jew, and Christian, or Buddhist. I divide the world between people who believe they're God and people who know they're not. And the only people I trust are in the second category, because that is the beginning of wisdom. When you know you are not God, that you cannot affect every change that you want, that you can't foresee the future, that you're not omnipotent, then you are much more likely to make good decisions, wise, humane decisions. By contrast, when you believe you have the power to shape the world and other people, as we were hearing this morning through, through you know, biohacking, um, when you think you can create a better human being through technology, you're very dangerous because you don't understand your own limits. You will get a lot of people killed uh, when, you, when you have those false beliefs, in my opinion. By, by this note, all right, so that is the interview, and uh, one of the things that uh, uh, Tucker said uh, in his in the wake of his Putin interview, and Putin gave him a gray dossier, and one of the things he said, he says, "Be ready for a cyber attack. Um, that our grid might be under attack." I think at some point. <clears throat> You have to look at the selection. I don't think there's an algorithm in the world that they can use to, to break the election or to, to uh, prevent Trump from winning, uh, except for the fact that I would say this. I would say the most important thing that you can do uh, in looking at this election, pay attention to the polls. That's number one. Not the fake ones. But uh, it's not just that. It's not just the polls. It's... it's uh, it's also the registrations because I have a feeling that the registrations are going to be really odd this year. Uh, like if you look back at uh, different elections, right? And you say, well, different years, like 2008 to 12 and then 12 to 16 and 16 to 20. Look at the registration pops, right? What the, what the actual growth of the registration numbers are. And if it comes to be like, normally it's like 500,000 more people registered to vote, and this year it's 5 million, 
<laughs> you know, something's up. They, they've gotten those illegals registered to vote somehow. Uh, John from uh, Chicagoland is on the line. Welcome. Scott, hi. How are you? Pretty good. Oh, good, good. Let me, uh, I'm uh, my speaker here. Okay. Uh, yes. Um, so, uh, just wanted to, uh, pop in about, you quite, you, you, the question was asked, well, why does the U.S. government do what it's doing? And, and it, it promote wars and whatnot. The Kofor Blacks, you've mentioned him a number of times, uh, as well as, as well as, um, as well as, um, uh, of course, Romney. And I think it's because they view this as, these people as pawns. They, they view, basically, this is a, a subject of foreign policy, right? So if it's a foreign policy issue, then if people die, they die, and they're like pawns on a chessboard. I think that's, that's why Boris Johnson can go to the Middle East and do what he's doing, because they all think they're historical actors, and they don't think about the individual. You know, remember Romney? Romney, during the 2012 election, made the comment that Russia is our chief foreign adversary, right. and he was mocked. And I think he's trying to re- sort of rehabilitate himself on the foreign policy uh, scene by sort of following through on that, that point, by saying, again, in that speech you played early in the show, well, if we do not, this is the most consequential vote we have, because we're giving Ukraine money to fight Russia. So... That's how they see it, I believe. Mm-hmm. And that's why they, they will do these things that are seemingly inexplicable. And yet, you, know, you hear uh, Romney then go on to say, well, we had $830 billion for the military. But somehow we came up with that. Well, you're right. That was some money we couldn't afford either. But we're so into this, as Tucker mentioned, that this, we're this world empire where we promote so many right. problems like all world that we'll spend them with we didn't have money for half right we really should be focusing on how to defend our own land and not worry about meddling in other wars but the military industrial complex has a huge hand in how these appropriations are uh put into law well exactly you know how they they divvy up contracts in basically all 50 states and in, you know, maybe 250 districts. And, and we got the music going, whatever. but go ahead. Yeah, quickly. Okay. And, and so they're able to sort of divide and conquer. But bottom line is, and you alluded to it as, as did Tucker, is when you don't defend your own population, first and foremost, from invasion, that's treason. Is really all it comes down to. Absolutely. Because you have disdained and yep. you have forgotten about your own population. It's inexcusable. That's where we're at. And that's not a good position to be in. No, it's not. But thank you for calling in today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Take care. Great day. All right. Bye-bye. All right. So uh, that brings us to the end of the Scott Adams Show. I want to thank everybody for tuning in today. Be sure to check out magapack.org. Make a donation if you can. Uh, it helps keep the Scott Adams Show commercial free. That's what we want, right? Uh, to have no commercial breaks, just one Great show, right? All right. Also, use Red State as your promo code over at MyPillow.com. And with that, we'll see you next time on the radio. Bye-bye, We're buddy. a stand, the mound's getting steeper. And grab a shovel, dig the hole a little deeper. Just to bury my kids right up to there.